Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of alternative viewpoints and lively discussion with today's most inspiring guests. So when most people think of tiny homes, a variety of images come to mind, such as a traditional Inuit igloo, a secluded house near a lake, or perhaps others may even think of Bilbo Baggins and his hobbit home in the Shire, created from the fantasy world of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. But whether designed as a means of survival or one created for idyllic life in the realms of Middle-earth, the contemporary tiny house movement has gained immense popularity in recent years and is largely underscored by a minimalist ethos that less is more, using practical design concepts of spatial context, decluttering and downsizing. However, the main assumption of the tiny house movement is that homeowners can increase affordability while reducing their environmental impact of their own individual footprint. And proponents of the movement are keen to work alongside policymakers and planners to address a number of complementary housing issues. For example, as a solution to a growing housing shortage and affordability crisis in large cities and conurbations on a global level. And also as a temporary form of housing for frontline workers and to meet the demands of a rising digital workforce. Indeed, the tiny house movement is not only gathering momentum, but it's also confronting these challenges head on. Tiny homes have a small footprint, but they offer a big alternative to homeowners with an open mind, to investment property owners and to individuals looking for a simpler lifestyle. So what exactly are tiny homes? Well, there's no single definition of tiny houses, but they generally refer to small buildings, often not more than 400 square feet, where the space available has been maximized to create a long-term residence. And a good working definition is a ground-oriented permanent dwelling that is detached, movable and non-motorized, small in size, less than 500 square feet and using a compact design. And this definition is... According to the 2021 report, Tiny Homes, an alternative to conventional housing by bchousing.org. And it's important to remember that it's neither a mobile home nor a traditional RV, but it is primarily a small home intended for full-time living. And tiny homes offer practical and economic options for a number of unique demographics, including people who prefer to live alone those seeking affordable housing and those looking for a minimalistic and or a transient lifestyle. And the majority of tiny homes are independent structures on wheels, but they can also be placed on a permanent foundation. Some are parked on land, an existing home, while other tiny homes are parked on their own lot. And they can be built by homeowners themselves, while others are purchased directly through professional builders, from the initial design concept to a fully finished product ready to be towed. 
And it's the link to interior design which creates the perfect entrance for my special guest today because not only is she the owner and founder of an established tiny home building company based in Lethbridge, Alberta, but she originally began her career working as an interior designer in the residential construction business at the age of 19. And she drafted and designed many single and multi-family show homes for a provincial home builder. She eventually progressed through various roles such as head of design, production manager and also operations manager. But it was during the period of 2015 to 2016 that her passion and vision were steered towards a new venture, that of tiny homes. And through her research, she discovered that there was a dire need for smaller alternative housing options for various demographic groups across Canada and also the United States. The average price in Canada for a conventional home now exceeds 700,000 Canadian dollars, according to the Canadian Real Estate Association while average prices in larger metro cities such as Toronto and Vancouver have reached a crisis point, exceeding 1.1 million Canadian dollars. And her wealth of experience in the home building industry led her to the conclusion that tiny homes are a viable option for many struggling to get a foothold on the property ladder. Tiny homes are less expensive, giving people the ability to pay off loans faster or possibly avoid mortgages altogether. And tiny homes also reduce environmental impact and drastically reduce the cost of living. And it was this passion to help others facing an affordability crisis, which was the main driver in utilizing her background in design and operations management towards the creation of a tiny home building company in 2016. And the result was Teacup Tiny Homes, based in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Jen McCarthy uses her out-of-the-box thinking and can-do unorthodox style to not only manage the day-to-day operations and general contracting of her business, but also pursue her vision of diversifying housing needs across Canada, the US, and even globally. So let's now welcome Jennifer McCarthy, business owner, entrepreneur, and mentor. Welcome to Good Morning Canada. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Jen, for taking time out of your busy day to speak with me. It's greatly appreciated. So I'd like to start with a brief introduction to your background. You originally trained as an interior designer and worked the majority of your career in residential home building. But eventually you found your calling in the tiny home industry. So I'd like to ask, what was the key shift in your life that attracted you to tiny homes? Yeah, one of the biggest things for me for sure was uh, when I was on maternity leave with my son. And at that point in time, there was so much going on in the industry. Uh, Building prices, cost to build for builders was going up in areas that buyers couldn't really see what that investment looked like. So just the raw goods, um, energy efficiency codes were implemented, which were a great thing. However, they were just driving prices to build homes higher and higher and higher. So for me, I was very, very grateful to get into the housing market when I was young, being that I was obviously employed by a home builder. But even my uh, my little brother, three years younger than me, it was a completely different world for him uh, getting into the market because everything changed so quickly. And at that point, really, that was kind of the thing where tiny homes were on HGTV. I was on maternity leave with my newborn son and it really piqued an interest in my mind that 
this could be the opportunity for change. So those the, those were the key factors, Jen. Um, but then there's also a, um, a, a point where, you know, every entrepreneur s- takes a, a massive leap of faith sometimes um, and, and then they decide that they're going to transform it into a business. And I'd like to, you to just quickly go through how did that develop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thinking about tiny homes, um, watching all of the shows, I knew I had the design background to be able to build a really great space for people, both functionally and aesthetically. And with my background and knowledge of home building and like you say, operations, um, it kind of fit really well together. Uh, the point of the leap was really when I started to do the research and I thought at first, okay, I'm just going to build one of these in the backyard <laughs> or on the driveway and sell it and make some money and see where it goes. And as I started to do more and more research, I realized that the last thing I would want to be responsible for was any kind of issue or um, accident or something like that, because I didn't know what I was doing. So. Right that's really where everything snowballed into. If I'm going to do this right, I need to be an official incorporated business. I need the proper insurances. I need to make sure that I'm purchasing the codes. I'm following the codes and the manufacturing styles that need to be done. And um, yeah, that's where, that's where Teacup Tiny Homes was born, really. Okay. So thank you so much for that excellent introduction because it really puts things into perspective. And Throughout the course of this interview, we'll be discussing various aspects of your business, the products that you design and build, and also your insights regarding the tiny home industry. But first, uh, I was when, when I uh, did research on your company and uh, especially looking at your website, I was intrigued by your company's customer experience process, and you describe it as the teacup experience. And I'd like you to explain that to the audience, starting with the discovery call. Yeah. So with, again, many years in home building, I know that, uh, and I believe, I guess it's a foundation of my being is that experiencing all of the moments in life as best as you can is so important. It's what you look back on. So our experience, we've basically, we've basically created a process that starts It starts long before the discovery call, I guess, with YouTube videos and research and Instagram and all those things. And then when our clients decide that they want to take the next step, then there's a link directly on our website where you can get in touch and book a call with our uh, salesperson, Shereen. And that starts basically our relationship. Once, um, Once you have those conversations with Shereen and have some questions answered, then we do a $5,000 deposit. And then that begins our process in working with us. With that, we unlock basically an online learning portal where we take our clients through from start to finish, basically what to expect when they build with us and some of the emotional ups and downs that they go through during the build process. So we really like to highlight Yeah, some of those phases where when you say yes to building, when you're going to sign the purchase agreement, obviously, there are heightened emotions. You have, yeah, strong feelings. It's scary. What are we doing? Not to mention that sometimes our clients aren't fully supported by their family members or friends. Um, There can be a lot of fear that goes along with it. So we really focus on helping them through that because we recognize those highly emotional moments through the process. 
So once we teach our clients about what it looks like, uh, we have a series of meetings that we have set up at different points in time where we go through the clients and we walk them through their plans and their needs, their wants, their goals, and make sure that we can really achieve those things for them, especially in a small space. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to get everyone's ideas and and visions into the smaller homes then it takes a lot of tweaking and a lot of conversations but ultimately at the end of the day it's really cool to see how it all comes together and of course the smiles on our clients faces when they get to see it for the first time okay uh, so um thanks for explaining that jen because I, i thought this um aspect it was so well thought out that it's it's done in uh, in such a, a thought out process there's a sequence along the way and and you've built in uh, as you're saying you know the, those ups and downs those emotional ups and downs so we know that tiny living represents a big change in so many ways but I'd like to know how prepared are your clients for the actual adjustment uh, to tiny living before they make that discovery call I mean you know, do, do, um, are they accomplished campers or, you know, I'm just trying to get an idea of that. Uh, how used to a tiny space are they? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, we have had everything from our clients downsizing from a 2000 square foot home and really taking the leap with their two kids um, or from people who have lived in a very small apartment and have basically already gone through the downsizing process and they just know they want smaller. So it can be at so many different stages. I think that the most successful ones have spent time really analyzing their lives and and have started in those smaller spaces. One thing we find with our clients is if they have been a homeowner before, if they have built a home or if they are used to an RV and understand how to use an RV, um, then they're a lot more successful too. Where we see some of our clients are kind of taken aback is where they've been a renter their whole life, haven't had to maintain anything on their own because with tiny homes, obviously, and home ownership, there is that whole maintenance aspect that really needs to be um, given attention. Okay. Um, so, the point that you mentioned earlier, uh, Jen, that was analyzing lives. We'll, we'll come to that um, later in the interview. But let's just look at, um, in terms of product range, your plans vary from uh, 22 foot in length all the way to 40 foot in length. And in terms of outer dimensions, uh, 8.6 feet is the standard width because obviously there's restrictions according to road transportation. And the overall height, um, just correct me if I'm wrong here, the overall height of each model, is is it 13.6 feet? Yeah, that's our max height, yeah. Okay, so uh, there are two plans um, which are both 30 foot in length, and and, and I believe uh, there is the Margo and the Ruby. Um, So is this the most popular product that that you sell, and, and also why do you think people tend to choose this option? Yeah, it is. Uh, the 30 foot long units, I'm not sure exactly why uh, the 30 foot, it just tends to be that number that people come to us with. And really, it does allow you to have kind of everything you need in a space that still feels spacious. So although we can get we can get 
pretty much everything into the 22 foot one as well, minus maybe a secondary sleeping space or something like that. The, the 30 foot plan is they're, they're really great. They just, they have everything. Um, the difference between the Margo and the Ruby, the Margo really is it has that main floor bedroom and then the Ruby has two upper lofts. So that opens up a little bit more space on the main floor for living. Okay. So, um, what I noticed was all of the plans have a different price point. Um, and how do you, um, very briefly, how, how do you differentiate between each model? Uh, is it, is it all down to personalization? Well, how do we differentiate between a, as far as price point goes? In terms of, um, because each price point represents um, a certain level of living. Um, so I was just interested to know, and the, the audience would be interested to know exactly how, uh, what, are the, what are the features, for instance, that, that would differentiate um, the safe haven, which is 28 and, and the Margo at 30 foot. That's just a, you know, a quick example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the pricing, it really depends on what um, roof lines, what um, basically things are included in those homes. So one of the things is how much cabinetry there is. Obviously, length does determine kind of more that price point. A lot of it is the aesthetics and how it's going to be looking because um, if you have, for example, the safe haven roof line, it has gable roof pitches. It has a few different things going on. Uh, whereas, well, so does the Ruby. The Margo has a little bit simpler roof line. So we take into consideration all of the different architectural elements as, as well as everything that goes inside. And then when we get into those personalization phases, obviously our clients can add an air conditioner or tweak their cabinetry or add different things like pull out recycling and garbage bins. And then that will also affect the price, but also make it super functional for their needs. Okay, so the design and aesthetics, this will come up in my next question now, um, because I'd like to just very quickly focus on how the modern tiny house movement developed over the years. So several books were written um, about tiny homes during the 1970s and 80s, but the real breakthrough from a wider cultural sense came in 1998 with a British architect, Sarah Susanska, and her book, The Not-So-Big House, A Blueprint for the Way We Live. And in a way, it really influenced the broader conversation about creating a better, more thought-out space. And her main idea was for homeowners to think about quality over quantity and from a design perspective to maximize small spaces and to make them look and feel bigger. And as a designer, you've incorporated this philosophy into many of your featured models. Uh, for instance, the use of ceiling height, storage space, and, and, and that incredible uh, technique of making a small space feel bigger than it actually is. So my, my question is this. Uh, if, could you explain how uh, you've achieved this blend of functionality and aesthetics? Yeah, it's, um, I always say that a well-designed 26-foot-long tiny home may feel bigger than a poorly designed 30-foot-long tiny home. And that is so key when you, when anyone is looking and doing their research on tiny homes is how they feel inside. So I tend to really gravitate towards the functional side of tiny living. I think maybe the design, the aesthetic is is very natural, 
um, already, we do like to focus on a lot of those higher end materials. We use custom cabinetry. We have to use custom cabinetry. There are so many little things that we have to work around that if we aren't using custom, then it, it wouldn't give you the right function. So, yep. Yeah, no, carry on. So, so when we go over our onboarding call with our client, we really listen to them. We ask them a series of questions. It's like a five page document that they go through and they answer all sorts of things because we want to make sure that, you know, if they like to can or jar or do that type of thing, then um, they have enough space for, for that. We need to make sure that if they really enjoy board games and they need a table space to play their board games on or have a few people over, that there's space for that too. So we want to make sure that we're incorporating their lifestyle. There are going to be habits that are going to have to be tweaked once you start living tiny, whether or not we can incorporate it all into the home. And there are going to be changes that every homeowner is going to have to go through, but we try to utilize as much of our knowledge and I guess skill when we're designing the homes and personalizing them so that they do work for our clients. With that being said, then we also know too, some of the ideas that our clients have gotten off of YouTube or other builders, simply just by looking at them, we can also just through experience know how it's going to make the home feel. We kind of know if it's going to work or if it's not going to work and how that space is going to feel because we've been in it and doing it for so long. Okay. So so this point that you just mentioned about uh, people doing research uh, on YouTube videos, this is an excellent um, point because um, when I watched many of your YouTube videos one of the main impressions is um, that these homes don't look tiny I mean there's just an overwhelming sense of space and so let's talk specifically about one of your tiny home plans uh, which is the summer uh, the summer's night dream and this really relies on uh, excellent design and build, um, and there's a, just, as you mentioned, a great combination of function and form, but it's a very efficient way to build, and I'd like you to explain how, how you achieve that. Yeah, so with this one, when, when we look at tiny homes and building tiny homes, we're always looking at how much they weigh versus the materials that we're putting in, and then, of course, the function. So we are kind of calculating and assessing through the whole build process what what the house is going to weigh first and foremost. So in the Summer's Night Dream, some of the things that make that home so effective is it's 26 feet long and the way, the amount of cabinets that we have, it has a main floor bedroom as well. It has the loft. So it has those uh, sleeping areas for four people. It has a smaller bathroom. What we find with our clients is a lot of them don't want to spend a lot of time in the bathroom. They want to utilize the space for living or sleeping. So the bathroom is a little bit smaller. And then the way that we've been able to put the kitchen together, it is a longer kitchen with huge storage opportunities. But the way that it comes down to is we only need a double axle on the trailer because of the weight. So another thing that plays into that is also the roof line. It's a fairly simple shed roof line. So when you're looking at the framing and the engineering of the structural design, we've also figured out how to reduce the weight, but keep a lot of that structural integrity. So it has just as much to do with what's outside the walls that we can see, as well as what's behind the walls and what you can't see when we're thinking about design. Okay, so... 
Let's look further back, Jen, at the uh, historical background of tiny houses. And, and what we see is that there's really a clear logic to the evolution of how and why people chose to live tiny. And, and I'm just going to give you two examples. So in ancient Mongolia, uh, yurts, that's spelled Y-U-R-T-S, uh, they were round structures with wooden supports. And also um, Native American tribes uh, around about 1000 BC, they lived in teepees, which were essentially conical-shaped tents. But both of them were wrapped in animal skins uh, to create a self-contained waterproof structure. So the idea is that circular or rectangular shapes were not only superior in design, but they were strong and less vulnerable to the elements. And this is such an interesting point, because similarly, all of your tiny homes are certified to CSA standards. Um, So if you could just explain how important are these quality assurance standards, um, also RVIA, how important are these uh, standards and what do they mean in terms of peace of mind for the customer? Yeah, it's the CSA standards and also our certification with RBIA. They are so important because it gives us a quality control program and manual that we need to follow. And that's probably one of the biggest things. So as well as following uh, the, the different set out standards. So one of those is an RV, which our three season models Basically, anything on tiny home on wheels is certified to that RV standard. Um, the park models, so the ones that are oversized and a little bit wider, which we build, those are certified to park model codes. And then we have our foundation series, which is our A277, which follows Alberta Building Code or Ontario Building Code. And those would be installed on a foundation. So the different codes, basically what that does is that it gives you a guideline to follow so that you have a set out build standard so that you are protecting the people that are living in the tiny homes as well as the people and the environment outside of the tiny homes. And that's one of the biggest reasons for those safety standards and why it's so important that they're followed. Okay. So um, that's an excellent explanation. So um, I'm just going to quickly go back to the tiny house movement. Um, So the, the modern version of the tiny house movement is largely attributed to Jay Schaefer um, and his he was a University of Iowa art professor and his first tiny house offered a first real insight into that tiny home lifestyle and this is an interesting quote because Schaefer once said that <clears throat> quote unlike the sprawl of modern houses tiny homes are undiluted reflections of the people who live in them because their owners downsize to the bare essentials. A small space really is a condensed living self-portrait of the person in the tiny home. And it's a wonderful quote and it captures the essence of, excuse me, tiny home living. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. That is a wonderful quote. I absolutely love it. And the essential when we peel back all the layers of life and we start to focus on the essential, it's actually another thing that I'm very passionate about is again, making sure that you experience life to the fullest, but we can do this in so many different ways and the minimalist movement, the tiny home movement, and it just goes so well together. Tiny homes are absolutely a reflection of us. A lot of people, um, they want it to be a reflection of them. That's why personalization is so important. But at the same time, they're focusing not only on things and stuff when it comes to essentials, but they're also focusing on time. 
So how you choose to, to spend your time is so precious in a tiny home. For example, you're not having to do all of the maintenance that you have to do in a larger home. You're not having to spend all of this time cleaning your space. You're more likely that you're going to get outside and do healthier activities just because of the space that you have in your pantry and in your fridge. It's very likely that you're going to be investing in healthier foods. So the overall lifestyle really gets really tends to influence people living, I guess, healthier lifestyles and that essential part of it is is just so key. Okay. So Jen, please hold that thought um, because all of these issues will be coming up in the uh, next segment. We're, we're coming up to a short break. There'll be much more to come in the next segment. See you soon. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav M. It's great to have your company. We are in conversation with Jen McCarthy. So, I'd like to turn to a question that many people may be asking, and it's a it's a, almost it's a logical question, and, and the, the question is this, what came before the tiny house movement? And one simple answer to this, the only way I can describe it is the big house movement. And there has been a growing trend for traditional houses to get bigger over the past few decades. And I'd like to look at this trend in more detail because it's hugely significant for understanding the tiny house movement going forward. So let's start by quickly reviewing the origins of the modern housing system. So the Great Depression of the 1930s created a, a chronic housing shortage and following World War II, successive governments in the US brought in a series of infrastructure projects such as new highways, building road bridges, etc. And this essentially kick-started a, a new era of home ownership supported by consumerism. And there were a range of policies from the creation of the Federal Housing Administration in 1934 to the very important uh, zoning mandates of individual towns and cities. And all of this fueled the growth of suburbs and it was a steady growth of the housing stock. So let's look more closely at the main reasons why houses have been getting bigger. So starting in the 1970s, many people in America were encouraged to think of their homes as financial assets rather than just a place to live. And the concept of buying the largest possible house was all geared towards potentially flipping it and making a profit along the way. And, and this gave way to a cycle of creating even bigger houses. Consequently, new U.S. homes today 
are 1,000 square feet larger than in 1973, and living space per person has nearly doubled. And what's more, the United States now leads the global league table on two main fronts. Firstly, house size. So the median size house has increased in size by almost 1,000 square feet from 1525 square feet in 1973 to 2261 in 2020. And this represents an approximate 50% increase over that period. And these figures are taken from the 2020 US Census Bureau. But here's the interesting part. While houses are getting bigger, family size is getting smaller. Now let's quickly look at living space per person. The average household size has been declining over the last 42 years from 3.01 persons per household in 1973 to a new record low of 2.53 persons per household in 2020. And it's a similar scenario for Canada. In 1975, the average size of a house in Canada was... 1050 square feet, just over 1,000 square feet. And today it's 1792 square feet. And Canada takes second place after the US when it comes to living space per person. So let me bring Jen McCarthy back into the discussion. So Jen, this really puts the case for tiny houses in perspective and it shines a light on why traditional houses have been getting bigger. So in your view, would you agree that most tiny homeowners regard their houses as primarily a place to live rather than a financial asset? Well, a lot of our clients and the younger ones, especially in the the millennial uh, demographic, they actually do want something that they can purchase. So they are seeing it as an asset, um, which is really important, but they kind of know that there isn't an opportunity right now because of housing prices to get into the market as uh, in like standard standard homes okay but when we look at those figures um from the u.s consensus bureau and uh, the canadian figures were taken from um, a 2017 report um so it really underlies this point that houses are, um, you know, ha- I'm, I'm talking about traditional housing stock. They, they essentially mm-hmm. are financial assets. And 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 I'd like to just reference this point to, to, to really bring it into um, a little bit more clarity. So in the 2000s, there was this uh, this idea that came up. It was called the Mac Mansion. And, uh, and, and this essentially um, just sums up everything that I, I've just mentioned in, in those reports that there was this trend of oversized mass-produced houses um, and it was especially um, uh, noticeable during the prior to the 2008 uh, subprime mortgage crisis and the philosophy was that bigger is better um, and and the idea was upsizing um, so but everything that we know about tiny homes is that as you said that those millennials and the baby boomers they've done their research and they want to downsize and, and, and that's really, um, you know, what I'd like you to, to comment on. Yeah. So, yeah, the McMansion, that's, that is such an interesting movement as to what happened. Um, from my perspective, what I see happening is that, is that they're just tired. They're tired yeah. of it. And it's just, it was such an e- ego-driven market, keeping Correct. up with the Joneses, however you want to say it. And, 
and that's tired. It's, uh, it's very, it's exhausting actually. Um, you know, mowing the lawn and having it perfect and, and, uh, you know, making sure you have this better car or whatever else that all the, all the drivers towards that, that kind of lifestyle, I believe came from ego. And now we, we have so much information now with all of the yep. information that's right at our fingertips, the amount of research and the amount of opportunity to investigate different lifestyles. I think that's where so much of what we do at Teacup is driven, diversify housing options. I know that not everyone will want a tiny home and they shouldn't. Not everyone wants a McMansion. Not everyone wants to keep up with the Joneses. So the the psychology behind what has become living versus having a giant home so you can show it off if if that is what it is it's just changed so much and it comes back down to what are you going to experience in your life and and what do you want to enjoy and the people the whether it's the boomers or the millennials they just really want to enjoy life and look at it differently they want to save their money they want to go on trips they want to look at those experiences instead of being locked into something that is way too big, exhausting, and overwhelming. And, and this is such an interesting point, Jim, because this leads directly to my, my next um, uh, area of discussion. But you're absolutely right. You know, the man, the McMansions, they, they were characterized by these uh, oversized staircases, uh, gourmet kitchens, um, uh, walk-in closets. Um, and mm-hmm. that's another thing. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But um, again, the, the, the point here is that all of these uh, these areas of traditional houses they were they were essentially fueled by ego and um as you've rightly said so let's focus on another issue uh, about bigger houses and, and that's the issue of clutter um because essentially the bigger the house the more the clutter there is and we know that owning and maintaining a big house is an integral part of the concept of upsizing that as we've just discussed and since the post-war period, most homeowners have been taught uh, to be upwardly mobile, um, and the idea is to own more material possessions. And the end result is to create this illusion of wealth and status, um, cars, houses, material possessions, and ex- as you've rightly pointed out, um, it's essentially it's just ego. And But the thing is that, that the, it's, it's just a huge waste of space, and this is one of the main benefits of tiny homes. There is is their affordability, and I'd like to just focus um, on a, a study. Uh, it was um, originally published in 2012 and reprinted in 2017, but it, it's a fascinating um, focus on exactly what we've been discussing. And the study was entitled "Life at Home in the 21st Century," and it was published by a team of social scientists at the UCLA. And it's a unique study because it focuses on the effects of consumerism and material culture on the lives of contemporary Americans. And and because Canada is, is virtually the same in terms of uh, the housing market, it's exactly the same. But it's the way in which empty space is now being used primarily for storage purposes to manage uh, a growing number of redundant possessions. And also on a darker note, how virtually all consumer societies are drowning in this culture of clutter. And and I'd like to share some um, key findings. 
So, for instance, uh, closets are underutilized because uh, they're simply inaccessible. People ca- cannot get to the uh, items that they want. Large bathroom suites in master bedrooms are unused. Shower cubicles uh, have become storage areas for dirty laundry because simply people don't have the time. 75% of garages are no longer used to house vehicles because they're used for storing possessions. So what we see is in tiny houses, there is no overflow because the, the owners are generally more have more th- thoughtful purchasing habits. So, Jen, in your tiny home models, you've designed some very innovative solutions to address this problem of clutter. Um, I'd like you to talk about that, uh, this idea of one product in and one product out. Yeah, it is the awareness in a tiny home just has to be so greater than than in a larger home. Uh, there's a quote, I don't even know, nature abhors a vacuum, basically being that if you have space to put something in it, you will fill it. If you have a three bedroom home, you're going to be moving bedroom sets into that, even if you never have anyone else sleeping over. Um, so with that, the clutter is there just isn't an opportunity in the tiny home to have it. So I love that because that ultimately produces so much less waste. And that is a really big thing. When we look at waste, we don't just look at what's going in the garbage can and in the recycling bin, but we're looking at clothes. We're looking at old furniture. We're looking at pots and pans and making sure that we can reuse them. Um, I know that there is a different consciousness of, of our clients. So for example, we are building a tiny home right now for a client who, who wants a walk-in closet. It's kind of a walk-through closet. Right. And what we've done is we've, she's, she's actually measured her shoes and told us exactly the size <laughs> of the compartments that are needed for her that's a, feet. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, like when you talk about going in and not being able to see what's in your closet, she will be able to see exactly what's in her closet. We use our cabinetry so that the things that are a little bit more cluttered looking, they can be hidden, but yet very accessible. One thing that we use in our tiny homes is a pull-out pantry. And basically you pull a handle, it's nine inches wide and it goes back two feet. So you can see everything from basically, I think it's like a 60-inch cabinet and it's 24 inches deep. Everything is right in front of you. And so you have less of an opportunity to be able to bring things in that you simply don't need. And I think that's, that's, that is a huge part of why um, just the lifestyle of tiny home living is a huge reduction on waste and, and the environmental footprint for the people living in them. Okay, so everything that you've discussed there, um, it also points to the the, the rise of these, um, uh, we've discussed the issue of clutter, but the the rise of these really large box stores such as Costco and and other similar stores. And and, and essentially they've created this culture of constant stockpiling um, and everything in Costco is oversized. um, And we know that tiny homes essentially they'd have no reason to buy anything from Costco because there's no place to store it. And um, is that something that, that your clients have, have mentioned in, in the um, initial discussions and, you know, the, the uh, calls that you have with them? Yes, exactly. It is, that comes up all the time. And usually it's uh, a little bit of a, a joking conversation when they say, I guess no more trips to Costco and uh, we don't <laughs> go there anyway, kind of thing. So usually they're already living that lifestyle where they don't, 
um, they're, they're living more of a just enough. We have what we need. And, and I mean, the groceries is such a great thing. I mean, I don't know how many times I've personally gone to Costco and ended up throwing out five heads of romaine lettuce because they've gone rotten in the fridge and you thought you're going to use it. So they just don't have the space for it. There is no more need for that type of, um, of storage. And it's just, you bring in, you use, you use what's in the house and then you go and get more when you need it. Yeah. And so let's just quickly return to the, um, issue of redundant space. Um, because one of the most interesting aspects of the study is, as we've just discussed, the sheer wastage of square footage in uh, traditional homes. And in this UCLA study, uh, tracking devices were placed on each of the participants. And the study revealed that the kitchen is the hotspot of activity. And, and that goes without saying. But the interesting part is that entire areas of the house, such as dining rooms or, or living rooms, that they were completely avoided. And it really makes you wonder that um, there's so much money is being wasted on, on creating these oversized houses and on, on space that they don't actually need. And presumably, this is one of the main discussion points with you with your own clients. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. We we thoroughly analyze what spaces they they enjoy living in and how they use them. Okay. And and a similar point. Um, Outdoor space uh, is also a very important issue to tiny homeowners. And uh, this is really interesting because the the UCLA study revealed that families who invested in um, outdoor improvements such as, um, you know, large decks and, um, uh, you know, the the, the hot tubs, etc., they were just too busy to go outside and enjoy the extra space. And during tours of their homes, the participants would say, well, this is the backyard, but I don't have time to go there. And for tiny homeowners, the use of the outdoor space is one of the main reasons for choosing a tiny home. Uh, the use of natural space is critical to their well-being. And I'd like you to just comment on that, because based on your discussions with your own client base, how important is outdoor space as an issue? Yeah, we we often talk about the outdoor space being an extension of the indoor living space. A lot of our homeowners, they put big decks off the front. Sometimes they have exterior storage as well. Um, But a lot of our clients too, they're very active in the outdoors. So they aren't spending a lot of time in their home. I mean, now when people are working or if they're commuting or if if they do like to spend time in the outdoors, hiking, biking, you know, snowshoeing, depending on the climate, of course, they're, they're not needing as much time. They're not spending as many hours in the house at all. So they're looking at it more as a place to eat, sleep, relax, and then using those moments during the day to get outside and experience life, to live doing the things that they enjoy instead of just sitting around inside the house. And, and that, that's, um, you know, that, that's an interesting point because it's, this idea that you know the way the space is utilized um, it, um, is being u- utilized, the indoor space and the outdoor space are being utilized so efficiently. And so let's let's move on now. Let, let's um, let's turn to another issue, um, another aspect of the tiny home movement. And and this one is is often cited as a, a major challenge um, to the the broader tiny house uh, movement and and we and it's basically finding a place to park a tiny home and 
in Canada, there is, um, oddly enough, there's still no inclusion in the building codes for parking a tiny home. And in Ontario, which is one of your biggest markets, the, the rules state that you can build a tiny house um, as a primary or a secondary residence uh, on land in Ontario, provided, firstly, that you own the land. Um, but this is the interesting point, buying the land um or even renting it is the most expensive part. And to get around this, tiny homes on wheels have to be placed in mobile parks or some type of camp, uh, camp, camping area. So the point is this, Jen, the, the issue of wheels is a very complex uh, um, point because firstly, for most tiny homes, that's the reason why they chose it because, you know, essentially it's a great selling feature that they want to move around. And, also, uh, but, but at the same time, municipal regulations, they, they seem to be creating barriers uh, to the growth of tiny homes. Um, and, and there does seem to be a lot of uncertainty and inconsistency regarding regulations. Um, so my question is this, do you think that municipalities could do more to ease the regulations? Well, yeah, and, and they are. There are a lot of municipalities that are jumping on board. I actually just saw a news article, um, and I can't remember exactly who it was by, where Nanaimo in BC on Vancouver Island has been looking at at tiny homes and uh, allowing them within the city limits of Nanaimo. There's been a lot of change, and the housing shortage has definitely uh, encouraged that. I've had the opportunity to talk to many city council uh people across Canada over the years just asking more questions. So it, it is the reason why tiny homes started to be built on wheels to, was to really get around a lot of building code issues. There is no tiny home code. There is no CSA tiny home code. So that's where a lot of builders and manufacturers are, are uh, basically labeling them as RVs if they're on wheels. And then the response from any municipality is that, well, you can't live in an RV year round, which is correct by definition. You, it is for recreational usage. So with that though, if you live in a, in a standard RV in Canada, you're going to freeze in the winter. It is too cold. They don't use the proper building materials and they're not built for long-term use. Whereas what tiny home builders are using is they're using standard residential construction practices that and actually a lot higher than even the Alberta building code or the national building code for example so using the spray foam insulation which has huge increases on rigidity um, making sure that there are safety codes followed our home we put in Fort McMurray had triple pane windows and that all helps with the efficiency so going back to the location it's where we have across the board where there are little pockets of land where there are no organized, basically, governments or or municipalities there. So then there's more of an opportunity to do something. And there are a lot of people who are investing time, energy and money who have it to create tiny home subdivisions. So there's a few that are popping up across Canada all the time. So it does get a little difficult to find where they can go. I do believe that tiny homes on foundations. So more of kind of your manufactured housing that's craned in, lifted onto a pure pile system. That will be more of the way of the tiny home future. And um, 
I do hope, I think with everything that's been changing that, that people get on board and more so the safety codes council, they start looking at how we can create building codes that are specific to tiny homes, whether that be on wheels or not on wheels. And that would help eliminate the location issue. Okay. Um, so very quickly, Jen, um, another challenge is obtaining finance and, um, a lot of the, the larger mortgage providers are unwilling to take a risk um, um, on, on tiny homes, especially if, if, if the owners have built it themselves. And, and this is where professional builders such as yourself come in. But in your experience, is, um, is the mortgage situation changing uh, in the tiny house market? So if you have a, a tiny home that is permanently fixed to the ground, you can get a mortgage or you can get something called a chattel mortgage, which is something that is used for manufactured housing where a home or a unit is placed on the ground and then attached to a foundation system. So there are opportunities for mortgages that way. Um, and, and there are some things changing there. Personally, we have, we have lenders that we connect our clients to. Our clients usually don't have issues getting financing, but at the same time, we have to make sure that if you're applying for financing, it's the same rules. You have a good credit score, you have the income, and you can make those payments. It's the same process in which you would go through applying for any kind of financing. Um, if the tiny homes are on wheels, typically they want to see the certification and what safety codes and standards are being followed. Obviously, because what kind of lender would want to give money or lend money against that unit if it wasn't built properly and all of a sudden it's going to be full of mold or there's going to be an electrical problem it's going to start on fire or something like that so that's why it's so important that professionals in my opinion are used and certain guidelines are followed so that they can confirm that it's going to be safe for the clients but also for their investment okay so let's look at some emerging trends now uh, regarding the the wider tiny house movement and we know that tiny home uh, sorry tiny homes will continue to grow in size um the most common size for a tiny home at, at the moment um is 28 feet in length but th they're also buyers are asking for 30 to 40 foot models so based on this trend which demographic groups do you think are interested in, in the larger models well I don't know if it's a, if, I think families usually would be interested in the larger ones. If there are obviously more people in the household, then they definitely want more space for everyone. Yeah. Growing and families, that's the way I looked at it. Exactly. Yeah. We have a, we have a couple we're working with right now. And one thing that we talk about that we've been talking about quite a bit is that space is for the future kids. We need to design and plan for the future children. So, um, yeah, that, and then also I would say probably the baby boomer or that demographic too, those who are going into retirement who have had the big space, but they know what they want. They're very aware of how they live and what they need and, and, um, and they're able to express it. So with that, they can often communicate their needs a little bit more, and that might look like a little bit more space. So I think it's just individual really as to what people are looking for and the plants that they've seen out there on, on the internet. Okay. And there's a, another emerging trend that tiny homes um, will be developing into second homes um, because often homeowners uh, intend to buy them as 
possibly vacation homes. Um, if this indicator is tr- true, um, do, do you think that this this trend m- might be replicated uh, in terms of um, people buying more tiny homes uh, on the basis of um, that? You know, it's essentially a townhome or a condominium. You know, on that kind of basis, do you, do you think it, that trend will, will take off? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, it already has, and especially with people not being able to travel as much as they used to, having that second property or location or cabins or cottages, that kind of thing. That's really where there is a lot of opportunity to be able to provide uh, a second living space for for families who want to just have somewhere else to go. So yeah, we see that quite a bit. Um, Lakes, cottages, RV parks, all sorts of things. And that is definitely something that we've seen a huge increase in, especially over the last two years. And and also the the tiny office, um, because more and more people are now adapting to either remote work or working from home. Um, are, Are you seeing this as an emerging trend? Yes, I love that too. Um, I often think of it myself. <laughs> I would love my own little tiny office space where you could just go, you know, the she shed or or the the man cave. They, you know, those have been terms that have really become more popular in the last little bit here. Um, yeah, so that's definitely another option. And that's such an interesting point because um, Roald Dahl, who is a famous British novelist, um, he actually kept a tiny shed, um, and 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 that was uh, essentially became the birthplace of of uh, some of his most uh, inspiring books. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that def- that trend will will definitely t- take off. So, Jen, I'm just going to wrap up now with some clu- concluding remarks. So, throughout this interview, we've established that tiny homes do provide affordable, sustainable and innovative housing solutions to accommodate a variety of needs and demographic profiles. Tiny homes also offer the opportunity for homeowners to value the quality of space that they have over the quantity of square footage. And it comes back to the core principles of the tiny home movement, which consists of creating a better environmental ethic and community values through the home environment. But also, we know that there are definite barriers, as we've discussed with Jen, but uh, to date, uh, political, financial and cultural norms have essentially dictated how tiny homes have been received in communities across Canada. But the biggest challenges lie in the relationship between growing demand for tiny homes and and the the various zoning regulations which uh, govern the the area where tiny homes can be set up freely but clearly tiny homes are an alternative to traditional forms of housing but more importantly they make us re-examine the underlying housing trends which have created undue societal pressures for decades but most importantly how we view our own quality of life and that's all we have time for today many thanks for listening to good morning canada a big big thank you to my special guest jen mccarthy you can find out more about the fascinating world of tiny home living by visiting her website teacuptinyhomes.com thank you so much i'll see you next time wednesdays 9am pacific 12 noon eastern thank you thank you for listening to good morning canada 
Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. 